Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we're sponsored by a great new app called the Improv Tonight app. If you've been asking yourself questions like, when did my friend say their improv show was? Or, what time is that Second City show? Find out now with the Improv Tonight app. Improv Tonight helps me easily find out show times and information on Chicago's best improv theaters. It's got all my go-to venues like I.O., Second City, Annoyance, and more, with new theaters being added all the time. Best of all, it's free. Free! Take my advice and download Improv Tonight today. Available for iOS and Android. This episode of Improv Nerd is also sponsored by the brand new Harold Ramis Film School. Do you love comedy? Have you toyed with the idea of making movies? Well, if the answer is yes, the Harold Ramis Film School is perfect for you. Located at the Second City in Chicago, this year-long program focuses on comedic filmmaking. Students are immersed in comedy training, film history, writing, and film production classes. Students will graduate the program with produced content, such as a screenplay, sitcom pilot, hour-long pilot, or short film. All you need to do is visit RamusFilmSchool.com for more information. That's RamusFilmSchool.com. And if you're coming to Chicago this summer, you're going to want to sign up for my Artist Low Comedy Weekend Summer Intensives. I'll be offering it on two separate weekends, July 30th through the 31st or August 6th through the 7th. To secure your spot, go to JimmyCorain.com. You better act quickly because these workshops sell out fast. Hey, everybody, we got a great episode of Improv Nerd for you, but when do we ever disappoint? We don't. Uh, Today is no exception. Our guest today is Natasha Rothwell. Uh, She has written for Saturday Night Live. She has studied at the People's Improv Theater, where she won the NBC Universal Diversity Scholarship, also at the UCB, where she's been in lots and lots of teams and shows, and was selected to perform at the Just for Laughs Festival, which is a huge honor. She has a new show called Characters, which debuts March. March 11th on Netflix. We talked to her about her amazing work ethic, how she got hired by Saturday Night Live as a writer, and her episode of Characters for Netflix. Before we get to the episode with Natasha, I just want to say I'm really excited that this is our first phone interview, and I'm really embarrassed that this is our first phone interview, because my wife, Lauren, has been suggesting this for over four years. And I know I'm an improviser and I'm supposed to say yes and to people's ideas, but I can be incredibly resistant. And how has that helped me with my career? It hasn't. huh? Um, I feel like I haven't had a chance to talk to you guys and I haven't been ignoring you. And I want to thank you for listening. If you've been listening on a regular basis, you know that we haven't had uh, some live shows. Uh, We're supplementing them now with just straight on interviews. We will be adding some more live shows to the mix, uh, so I just wanted to let you know. And then we'll be getting on a regular schedule uh, of of doing live shows here in Chicago. Uh, Also, a lot of people want to know about how the pregnancy is going with Lauren, my wife. It's going very good. Thank you for asking. uh, She's starting to show, and I had a slight slip. Um, My wife is very conscious of her weight, and now she's, she's gaining weight because she's having a baby. And you don't want to say, oh you're showing or you, you you look pregnant. So I said to her the other day, uh, I feel like such an idiot. I said, 
well, you, you could pass as fat now. And she said, that's probably not a good thing to say to a pregnant lady, which she was absolutely right. Uh, enough about me. It's great to be back. It's great to make this connection with you guys because I have missed you. Uh, here it is, the Natasha Rothwell episode. Enjoy. Natasha, you grew up in Waldorf, Maryland, and your family went to church two days a week. And church was really where you got your start in theater. You did morality plays and Bible study reenactments. What was one of your favorites? Um, I, I can't recall one in, in specifically, um, but I was just involved in uh, our church's like performance and youth, uh, the youth ministry. And so any opportunity that I could have to perform, I did. And I grew up not just in Waldorf, but all over. My dad um, was in the Air Force for over 30 years, 36 years, I think. And um, I moved around a lot. And so theater was definitely my way uh, into meeting people and to express myself in a community that was really open and welcoming to new people. And I was the new person a lot. And how did you, you, because being the new person is really hard, how did, how did comedy help you uh, break the ice uh, be, being the new person? Well, it's a really easy way to get people to like you, for sure. <laughs> You're making them laugh. Um, and I think that it definitely, because moving around wasn't something I had to overcome because it was just all I ever knew, um, I just automatically, I guess, sort of evolved into that as sort of like a tool to help meet new people. Um, but it was never, um, you know, uh, I guess conscious, I guess you would say I was always sort of like from the time I was very little, my parents tell me stories that sort of, I gravitated towards levity. And I think that like also like-minded people, I think tend to draw themselves to each other. And so like the people that I would be drawn to at these new places, enjoyed comedy or finding the, the fun and humor in things. And then you go to college, you go to the University of Maryland, and you major in theater. How did you get involved in improv there? Um, well, before Maryland, I was at Ithaca College, and I majored in journalism. And at, in, in an effort to, I guess, sort of create some sort of lifetime <laughs> after school special where for some reason I thought my parents wanted me to do something more legitimate. And when I called them crying halfway through my freshman year, they're like, we thought it was the craziest thing. We thought you were going to major in theater. And so when you told us journalism, we were confused. <laughs> so um, while I was at Ithaca, I was doing performance and all that kind of stuff while I was there while simultaneously trying to do journalism. And then I transferred to Ithaca after my freshman year and um, immediately, obviously, in the theater department was trying to find ways to join groups because I was, again, the new kid. And so um, trying to find uh, ways to express myself. And I had done improv in high school. I had a theater teacher um, and she, Miss O'Neill, and she was, uh, I believe she went to NYU and did a lot of stuff in the comedy scene in New York. And so she had us do long form improv and short form improv in high school. And so I had gotten hungry for that style of expression from very early on. And so when I got to Maryland and I knew that I was going to do this for my, my life's work, I was looking to um, get involved with the scene there. And 
uh, Erasable Ink is the improv team there, and I auditioned twice. I did not get in my first time. How did you um, How did you take that when you didn't get in the first time? Um, I I was confused <laughs> more than anything because um, I felt like I had a strong audition, but I think it was also the kind of uh, uh, reality check I think I needed as far as just like prior to the I. I had auditioned for uh, the performance scholarship at Maryland, which is why I chose to go there as a transfer school. Cause I got a full ride um, for acting. And so I think I went into that audition just assuming that it would be something I would get. Um, and so it was humbling in all the right way, all the right ways. And I think that um, I think the, ne the next time I auditioned, I was much more grounded and, and, um, realistic about like what it means to really be a part of an ensemble and, and without any expectations. Had you been the star up until that point, like in high school? Yeah. I mean, I hesitate to use star, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was successful for sure in high school plays. And um, like I said, going to Ithaca and doing productions um, for non-majors there. And then, getting a scholarship into Maryland. I think it was because I, at the time I was just truly tapping into what I really do believe what I was put here to do. And when you're doing what you're sort of called to do, there's an ease, I think that comes into like stepping into your own in that way, instead of fighting against it. Like I felt when I was trying to be a journalist and I was like, this is way too hard <laughs> and not because I can't do it, but because it's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so uh, after I didn't get into Erasable Inc., my first audition, um, yeah, it was probably the first time I had felt a rejection um, in that arena. I think, um, yeah, I'm, I might be forgetting something else, but I feel like that's the most memorable, like you, my first moment. Do you remember the show or the time where it was that, that it was clear to you that this is, this is what you were supposed to do? Um. I, they, I, I honestly, from the time I was very little, I was always performing. My dad showed me this videotape of me taking a Michael Jackson doll and I was making it move on camera and I was like pretending to be Michael Jackson. And it was me and some, some cousins on this like very sort of like old school VHS. And I just, I, I could see myself then loving that. And I think that like, I forever, you know, me being just a child, like a ham on camera sort of evolved into really being a performer. But, um, I did in, in high school, my, one of my furry, my first sort of big role, I was mama Rose and gypsy. <laughs> and, um, it was a colorblind casting. So it was me and I had four, or I think I think two white girl children and it made sense to me because I didn't see color and neither did the department, which was really cool. And, um, mama Rose has like the big song, you know, everything's coming up roses and it's just her on stage singing. And I remember doing that and just knowing in my, in my heart that like, uh, this is something that I need to be doing and feeling so such a release from that experience and, and, um, really falling even more in love with what I was doing. Um, the whole thing about not seeing color, was that something you developed at home or through school? Um, I think 
that's just the way I, I, I was always raised and, and I think live, live my life. Um, the air force is a very diverse, uh, branch of the military. And so grew up around all colors, shapes and sizes. And so, um, it's important to me, I think, to see the world in, in that way, um, with regards to, especially in high school and in college casting. So you can really experience the whole range of human emotion and not sort of like the small, um, small ways certain races are often seen. And how has that helped you in comedy? You know, comedy has come out under a lot of criticism recently, certainly improv with the sexual harassment stuff and the sexism and, and the women of color. How has that helped you, uh, you know? Well, uh, I, it helps me. In terms of um, not, for, for you, you know, like you, you don't, you don't see, you don't see color. How has that helped you in comedy? Well, I mean, I, I would be remiss if I said I didn't see color. I think I don't um, believe that that is the first adjective that people want uh, to describe themselves. And in, in, for me, anyway, I won't say I won't speak generally. I'll speak personally, because I think especially in light of the current climate, everyone wants uh, people to speak for everyone. But I'll speak right. for myself. Um, I I'm consider myself like a writer and a performer and an actor and an improviser. I'm not a female improviser. I'm not uh, a, a black female improviser. Those things are, those things are true about me, but I think what I want to define me and my humor is I want it to uh, reach as many people as possible. And I think that like that in no way says that like, I am not proud of who I am or proud to be a woman or an African-American I'm very proud of those things. Um, but I think that when we only define people by characteristics that make us different from one each other, from one another, um, it, it does a really huge disservice to an art form that I think is meant to bring people together. And the humanness, I think, of what it means to be a person in the world, to perform and to feel things deeply as I think artists do. Um, and that's sort of the gift we have is to feel things more deeply, I think, than other people. Um, I think to separate or to um, try to isolate one group as opposed to another group, um, it, it does a disservice to, I think, that sort of the, the goal of the art form, specifically in improv. I think that like the lack of diversity on stage is apparent. And I think that um, it's something that needs to be worked on. Um, and I think that starts with just seeing people that are trying to do this, uh, for their talent and not feeling like the color of your skin has to be a requirement to do it. Um, you then graduate from college in 2003 and you spend five years at the Washington Improv Theater where you were on the main stage there and director of education. Why was spending time in a regional improv theater important for you? Um, it was hugely formative. I mean, I, it was my first sort of professional acting uh, opportunity out of school. Um, and I just, I loved every, every minute of it. I was able to really hone my skills 
and, and to perform with people who were really smart and funny and kind and really believed in the craft like I did as not just um, something that wasn't legitimate. You know, it, they believed in it as an art form and as a way of expression. Um, and I, and I just, I, I grew, I grew there uh, immensely after college. Um, and it's sort of the turning point, I think, because in college I was doing, in addition to erasable ink, I was obviously a theater major. And so there was sort of a shift that happened after college where I was still pursuing quote unquote legitimate theater. And, um, it was through doing, you know, stuff at wit that I really knew that I wanted to focus my, my talents and performing into comedy specifically, as opposed to sort of generalized uh, scripted theater. And I also really found myself, even in scripted theater, I was being cast in comedy roles and things like that. And so I was, again, rather than fight the obvious, I really gave into that and um, embraced it at wit. How has your theater background helped you in comedy and in improv? Commitment. I mean, a hundred percent, I think that, um, to do comedy in, in a way that's, I feel in its purest form is to really believe sincerely in something entirely ridiculous. And, um, to me, I think that my theatrical background really allows me to go to that place where I can really sincerely believe with all my heart that, you know, the thing that I'm about to do or say, or the exchange I'm about to have is true for that person. And um, I love that. I think it's my, the biggest asset I think I bring to performance, uh, performing comedy rather um, is that theater background. Cause I think it takes, I've experienced from the teaching side, from teaching improv, uh, a lot of students struggle with their ability to commit to what they're doing because they very quickly, when they do something ridiculous, they go from being a participant to a spectator and begin to judge themselves and what they're doing and um, really letting that inner critic go and allowing yourself to really be in the moment and be present and believe truly what you're doing. I think the best comedy comes from that. And I think that I've benefited from, you know, from that. I, you know, I've taught for a lot of years and I always found that actors had a much easier time doing that. Is that because they've worked with scripts and they've done characters that are, are, are not uh, a version of themselves? I think so. I think that like when you do tackle scripted material, which I still find myself doing all the time, it's breaking down what you're doing and the, the make believe of it and finding real connections to what you're portraying, the characters that you're trying to take on. And that's just a muscle and a process that I think that actors who deal in scripted material, uh, that muscle really does benefit when you're trying to do improv and step into that arena, because even though you're re and, and, the acting and reacting in the moment and listening are skills, I think as an improviser helped me as an actor. And so I think like making something that's wrote and memorized feel fresh. I feel like those tools from improv cross over the other way where you're able to really uh, listen and react spontaneously, even if you have something specific that you have to say. So I think they work really well together. Um, and I think that like it, those improvisers out there that don't have a theatrical background, I mean, there are millions of classes you can take, all that kind of stuff. But I think that approach is 
can be super helpful if you're looking for ways to really, if you struggle with the issue of commitment in improv. And then you moved to New York City in 2008 uh, after five years at the Washington Improv Theater. And you get involved with Pitt in the UCB. How did you adjust from being, you know, a big fish in a small pond to, to really, when you go to New York in, in the improv scene, it's, it's starting over? Yeah. Um, well, prior to moving to New York, I was, I was in Japan from 2008 to 2009 and performed at the Tokyo Comedy Store while I was there. And that really prepared me, I think, for my time in New York because it was the strangest pond for sure. Maybe not the biggest comedy scene, but um, taking those tools helped me really transition into my time in in New York. And I think that um, I had always held very closely to me the Steve Martin adage, be so good they can't ignore you. So the size of the pond didn't scare me. To me, it was I, how how do I communicate the talent that I believe that I have in a way um, that can be heard and seen. Um, so that way, that can't be ignored. So, regardless of the barriers that I would have to overcome for just being uh, a woman, a woman of color in a community and in a scene that's not historically generous to either of those. Um, to me, I was just like, well, I, I'm going to fight the system by being so good that they, they can't ignore me. So that way, um, I can have, uh, access and opportunities available to me because I've worked hard on myself and my talent. Um, confidence is so important in, in, in comedy and improv where, and when, when I talk to, you know, when you, you're telling me this stuff, it sounds like you had confidence it, it, it back uh, at a very young age. How did you get the, that confidence? Cause that's really important. I mean, it's not something that is, is gained and not lost a million times <laughs> over the course of, uh, of a career or even a day, you know, it's, um, really trying to, um, embrace even the smallest successes. And I had a mentor once tell me, keep my eyes on my own paper because I suffer very greatly from wanting to crane my neck over and look at what other people are doing and then basing my success on what other people are doing as opposed to what have I actually done and accomplished and really celebrate that and allow those small successes to add up to a bigger success that can propel me to the next thing. Um, and I'm, I also am really grateful for the fact that I have parents that are entirely supportive and really uh, in my corner to give me my entire family, really not just my parents. I have two sisters, two sisters and a brother and all of, all of them, are a great strength to me to give me the strength and courage to do what I do every day. And you, you were, you're also on a, you were on a bunch of Harold and Maude teams at the UCB, like two twelve dinner, Kinsey neighbor boy and others. And you were also on a longtime duo called uh, hot, hot, up, hot up and Rothwell. What was one of the most memorable shows you, you ever remember doing? Oh, wow. Um, that's a tough question. I've done. I've what, done. A, did a you ever lot, have yeah. a bad, really bad show that was memorable, or a really fantastic show that was memorable? Um, I'm trying to think now. 
I have, a, oh man. Um, I, <laughs> I'll, I have a, I have a couple that stick out. It's funny when bad shows happen, I can usually remember every detail of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then when good ones happen, you're just like, Oh, that was good. And you don't, you don't remember the, the painstaking moments cause there were none. Um, there was a show that I did in DC when I was with wit and it was when I was on, uh, doing this show called I musical and I played this proselytizing bear and in this fantasy improv musical show. And I just remember feeling so completely free and having so much fun. And, uh, I can't remember the context of the show. I just know that I, I played a bear and I was singing and it was just in that moment, I was just, just really happy to be doing what I was doing. Um, Dan Hodap and I have been, he's, he's one of my best friends and we've been uh, comedy partners for a really long time. I knew him back in DC even before we started playing together in New York. And my shows with him are always, I feel like some of the best improv that I do because um, we know each other so well personally and that trust really does come through on stage with improv. And so, um, it, we, I mean, we've been every sort of, I feel like explored every kind of pairing on stage. And then I think, can we really find anything new because we've been performing for so long together and every time we surprise and, uh, delight each other with our choices. And so I love playing with him. And, uh, yeah. What's the secret about, um, playing with somebody that you've been playing with for a long time? Well, I think it's the, up to that point, like not, um, not doing things that on, on stage that Phil wrote or um, old and stale. It's, it's going out I, the, with the express po- purpose to surprise your partner on stage. I think that keeps the improv really fresh and, there are moments before we go on stage, Dan and I, and I'm just like, I'm going to break you. And he's like, I'm going to break you. And our goal is to make grounded, uh, interesting choices that surprise the other person. Um, I think that keeps uh, long-term comedy partners, I think, something fresh. Because if you are on stage with with her or him and and they're doing something that seems similar to something you've done before, it can feel tiresome i think and when you say break them break them up on stage make them laugh or you're just going to be let's find new territory that we haven't discovered yet both both and i think that like the when people break on stage i'm really hard to break on stage and i think that's why we started saying that (laughs) and so uh i think that when you do see other people break it's when they're surprised (laughs) and so that I think it's the, it's the same thing. Let's like do something undiscovered and brand new. So we surprise each other. And also because we're both pretty committed performers, it, we're hard to break, uh, you know, by laughing as well. So it's both. And in 2014, uh, SNL was getting a lot of heat for not having any black female performers on the show. And at the same time, the pit hosted a special performance called it's a character thing, which turned out to be a secret audition for Saturday Night Live. You were involved in that audition. Can you take us back to that night and tell us what happened? Um, that night, it's um, 
it's sort of a blur. <laughs> um, I had a couple of run-ins with SNL prior to that night. Um, there, there was a, a producer that came to one of my sketch shows at UCB and had reached out through the artistic director. And I think that summer before the showcase, I had done just for laughs and SNL had been floating around. Um, but it, again, like you were saying, like there were the heat that the show had received from their, the lack of black female performers sort of necessitated the showcase. Um, and the, because of my relationship with the pit, the artistic director, director there had reached out to me. Um, and so I worked to get, you know, my set together pretty nonstop from the time I knew that it was happening to the time it happened. Um, and that I think again is where sort of the Steve Martin adage super applied because I sort of knew that they would need a Michelle Obama and I, in no way resemble her. <laughs> and um, part of the beauty, I think, of SNL is that they really try to, you know, their imp impressions, um, their, it just wouldn't have made sense for me to do it. Um, and so I knew that I was fighting an uphill battle with regards to trying to get seen. And so I had nothing to lose. Truly, I didn't. And that freed me up quite a bit. Um, and so uh, I, I don't know what what order I went in. Um, I know we started late, <laughs> like maybe 10 or 15 minutes late. And so that everyone backstage was going a little nuts. Um, but yeah, I, I, my two, two sort of focus, foci <laughs> were, uh, be, be so good that they can't ignore me and, you know, perform like you've got nothing to lose. And that I, I felt like I had a really strong showing because of that. How'd you feel after the, the audition that night? Relieved. <laughs> I mean, it was over and it was, I felt that I, I, I was proud of the work that I did. I really had no regrets after that audition. And, um, it felt, uh, I felt it was really also an awesome night for diverse comedy because it was surrounded by some of the most talented uh, hilarious women of color that I knew and we were all on sharing a stage that night and that just had never happened. And so it was this, I just felt honored to be in the, in the company of such amazing, smart and talented performers who just also happen to be women and people of color. And then you get hired as a writer for the show. And if anyone doesn't know, I mean, writing for Saturday Night Live is a very hard job. There's a lot of pressure. There's long hours. Did you feel any additional pressure because of the circumstancing, uh, circumstances surrounding the, the time you were hired? Um, I, I, I don't know if I can parse out the percentage of where the pressure comes, came from, but I think that everyone there, it, the, the, there's a pressure unique to that job period, I think across the board that everyone experiences. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if I could say that there is, more pressure because of the circumstances or not. Um, because after, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure after the, yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm going back in my mind. I'm like, what was it? I don't know. Um, was it, yeah. was it like, was it like a, 
um, when you look back, like almost like a dream? I don't know. I don't know if it felt like a dream. SNL for me wasn't a dream until it became a, a possibility. I mean, there it, it's interesting because for the longest time watching the show when I'm younger, I just never saw myself reflected on the show. And so for me, I knew that my pursuit of comedy and performing, um, like I would have to figure that out outside of the realm of making SNL the goal. And so it was very strange. I think when everything came along where I was, there's this thing that of course I would have loved to made a dream, but because I didn't see myself reflected, didn't know it could be. And then it was much later when, you know, a producer came to my show at UCB and I had all these other run-ins that, um, it became a dream and in the respect of not like a hazy dream that, you know, I can't remember anything, but it became like a real desire of mine to be a part of the show. Um, and the, the process leading up to it beginning, um, was just, I think a whole like step-by-step step was just disbelief <laughs> that it was happening, you know, that it was actually becoming a reality. So this wasn't something because most improvisers, you know, SNL is a dream for them when they start out. But you're saying that you until until, you know, you people were starting to be interested in you. You didn't even realize this was something that you wanted. Yeah. And I think for that reason, because I mean, when I was younger, I idolized, you know, Carol Burnett and Lily Tomlin and um, these powerhouses, Gilda Radner and these amazing women who just really performed at every time, like it was their last time and Gilda notwithstanding, like, you know, the SNL of it didn't play a part for Carol or for Lily. And I knew that I could find other routes to the success that I wanted to achieve outside of the show. And then as I began to do comedy more and more faithfully and it became, you know, transitioned from being a part of my theatrical background to the main focus of my career. Um, I wanted to aspire to that show. Absolutely. But when you see a show that didn't like that show didn't reflect me. And so um, my, my goal I don't think could have been SNL. Um, I'm sure. And again, I'm speaking for myself. Um, but uh, it wasn't until I had these, these encounters with the show that were showing interest in me. And that first encounter was even before um, there was any sort of negative press that SNL received. They had reached out to me before any of that had happened. And so that really sparked the possibility for me was prior to that. Um, and it, Lindsay Shookus is who saw me at, at, at UCB and just said the most wonderful things and was a huge supporter, um, prior to that. And so that's sort of when the light turned on as like, huh, you know, if, if this show is really trying to reflect the society that we're in, in a realistic way. And I'm an, I'm, uh, an option for that. Um, then I, I got excited and, and really sort of set my, 
hard on it at that point. Do you have a surreal moment when you were on SNL? Like you can't believe uh, you met this person, or you got to work with this person, or you wrote a sketch and it, you know, for that person. Um, I had a couple. I think my the first one. It was the first night, uh, the premiere, um, and I stood on the floor and watched the credits, and I saw my name, and I cried so hard. <laughs> Because I was standing in Studio 8H on the floor of Saturday Night Live and I saw my name uh, scroll and I saw the goodbyes happening, something that I'd seen my whole life. And I was there in person watching and I was a part of that. Um, and that was I, the most surreal, I think. Um, and then later on in the season, I wrote uh, Taraji P. Henson's monologue and... Um, the fact that it made it all the way to, to air. Cause I'm sure you are well aware that not everything that makes it to dress makes it to air. And, you know, there's a dress a rehearsal before to really try out what works, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, to, and up to that point, uh, I've gotten some other sketches on, um, but the monologue was something that I, I really wanted to, to make happen. And again, watching that, uh, happen at the top of the show from the floor and, and Taraji P. Henson is just the most dynamic and charismatic and kind person you could ever meet. And just to see her really hold nothing back as she like performed, um, something that I had written was really, um, special for me. So those are the two, two surreal moments for me. Uh, was it hard to move on from SNL? Um, the transition happened with the Netflix special actually. And so I had went straight from SNL to pre-production and writing and prepping for, um, the characters. And so the transition out of it, I mean, thankfully, um, it was sort of seamless and it, it was, uh, an amazing opportunity. I think when Netflix, um, approached approached me with that and I just couldn't believe it from like I said I'm still pinching myself and it's to get uh, a, a half hour in a blank piece of paper was um, a really amazing thing to get to do and I think that my time at SNL really prepared me to do it and for people who don't know it's a sketch show where different comedians get to write all of the sketches for one episode and uh, tell us a little about what we can expect from your episode? Um, well, for, for my episode, I played around with the um, seven characters sort of all existing in the same universe um, and having one character sort of be the through line um, and the connective tissue between the other ones. Um, I'd always been sort of uh, inspired by the state in that way and watching how they use sort of subtle connective tissue and storytelling and, um, and in their comedy and relating things together in that way. Um, and so my special really sort of explores the comedy of sort of like what happens when you have uh, a situ situations and moments where unlikely people have to spend time together. Um, in, in a real sort of grounded way. And I think, um, 
yeah, it's, it's, it was super surreal to do and, and amazing to, to be a part of something from soup to nuts and really create a show, um, that I'm really proud of. And you're the star of this show. You're also the boss of this episode, I would imagine. Uh, what did you learn from this experience? Um, everything. <laughs> so much. I mean, I, I learned what it means to executive produce and to show run um, an episode of something and, uh, and to really take great care in the decisions that are made because just understanding how, you know, what you type on a paper, how many people that affects ultimately <laughs> and what that those words affect from, you know, costume, hair, makeup and production design and, you know, your bottom line and all that kind of stuff taking into account um, every little bit. So there, I, I learned so much. I feel like, um, and a lot with uh, SNL and producing the sketches there, you know, as if, as a writer, if you get something on air or to dress, you produce it. And so I really was grateful for that experience because I was able to build on that with the characters. Um, and Jack's media couldn't have been more incredible. Um, I honestly like they're magicians because I don't know how they were able to do all of these episodes because they're all, I'm told very desperate. I haven't seen, I don't, I, I know nothing about any of the other specials, um, but to give each, uh, all eight of, eight of us sort of uh, a license to, to do whatever we want. Um, they really were instrumental in making that a really smooth process and an enjoyable process. And Jax Media is the production company? Yeah, Jax Media is the production company, yeah. And that, they uh, obviously, along with Netflix, um, really gave us uh, an opportunity of a lifetime. And when you're doing this, is it the same feeling you got when you first did improv? Like, this is what I meant to be, to write my own material and star in it? A hundred percent. I think this is the, the most, the most sort of synthesized version of, of, of what I, I'm meant to be doing. And it's a combination of everything. It's the scripted portion and a lot of those things that I've written I, or that were written for the show came from improv because that's my background. So I would improv the script and then edit based on my writing background and then being able to perform it using my theatrical background and then using the production skills and things that I've learned along the way. Um, really, I think that's sort of the, 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 the goal for me is to find more ways to do just that, to continue to write and perform for myself. Um, the things that I think that are funny and um, the things that I think that I can connect to and commit to, like I said, like um, in a real sort of honest way. I, I've never had the opportunity to write for somebody else. I have, I've only written for myself. Was it hard on SNL to write for other people or do you look at it as, Oh, it's just a job. I'm getting a paycheck. This is a great opportunity. Um. And no, I never looked at it like just a paycheck at mm -hmm. all. It was for sure for me um, a, a very necessary tool. I think that like for for any feature or pilot or TV show, even if you're writing for yourself, you still have people that you're writing for unless it's just you on camera. So um, 
you're, you're considering that person's world and writing for other people that may be in it. And it was, I think a real, um, opportunity for me as a writer and a performer to, to write for other people on the show and to really try to, um, distill a comedic idea into a particular person. Um, and also considering sort of where I was writing because there's, um, an interesting sort of Venn diagram of what you're writing for in at SNL, because they're the things that I think are inherently funny and there are things that the show uh, is more likely to put on. And in that overlap is where you're writing. And that's the happiest place to write is trying to figure out what, when you're writing for other people is, you know, what do I think is funny? What do I think uh, is the comedic idea and how, uh, can that practically apply to the other person or institution or production company or TV show that I'm writing for? And how did that make you a better writer then? I mean, it was stretching me, I think, to really think outside of um, my own abilities to communicate that comedic idea, but to write in a way where um, those words and the comedic idea can be communicated by anyone who's um, who's doing it. And in the most ideal terms, specifically, you're writing for like one person. Um, um, and so, yeah, that was, I, for me, it was super helpful to get into, into that habit of um, considering, considering uh, other people and their unique skill set in what I'm writing. And what is your hope for the, the Netflix uh, series characters? Um, my hope is that people will enjoy it. <laughs> um, I really want, uh, to make people laugh and to, um, really get to know the characters that I've created and understand me better, I think, as a performer and as a writer. Um, and, uh, I, I, do, I I'm hesitant to, <laughs> to, to put anything else on it besides that. I think that, um, I'm, I'm more interested in, in uh, people's reactions to it as opposed to any expectations I have for those reactions. How do you do that? I have, I, I'm not good at that. If I had this show, I'd be like, I, you know what? You know, I have an opportunity. If it goes well, they're going to order six more series, six more shows from it. How do you just let that go? Um, I, I'm, I, I, I think that for me, I can't that for, for me to think that this would be, um, the, the only ticket, it would make me very stagnant at present. And for me, it's, um, I thrive on being busy and working and, um, creating projects for myself and being a part of other projects, um, that I'm passionate about. Um, and so I think that Netflix is a part of that. And I think that I'm excited to see what comes from it for sure. Um, but I'm more excited about taking the tools, uh, that I've learned from doing it and the experience that I had doing it, um, and creating that next thing where I'm able to perform and create things that I write for myself. Um, it's not, it's not easy, but I think it helps that I'm, uh, I can't, I'm not, uh, good at waiting. 
so I'm staying busy and I'm writing and um, excited for what's next. You know, so many improvisers, including myself, sit there and they just wait to be put on a Herald team or wait for their friends to ask them to be in a group. Um, how important has it been to your success for creating your own projects outside of UCP, outside of Pitt? Um, I think it's the reason why I've achieved anything that can be considered, you know, success is not waiting for other people to, uh, create things for me. It's, um, really finding your comedic voice and believing in it enough to find opportunities for yourself. And, um, I think for people that are waiting for institutions to qualify their ability, they'll, that's a position that they'll stay in, you know, because if it's not UCB, it'll be, you know, a different network or a different, you know, production company or something else where you're waiting for other people to determine your worth, but to know what you have and to really believe in it, um, means to fight for it and to create opportunities yourself, especially in this age where you have your phone, which is a camera and it's, you can create anything. I think that the movie Tangerine was shot on iPhones. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there are, um, there are really no excuses. I think when it comes to, um, making, making a way, you know, I'm always so inspired by Abby and Alana in Broad City because they didn't have Herald team success and Broad City was the result of that. And uh, not the result of that, but just the fact that they weren't going to take no for an answer, that they knew and believed in themselves and their talent enough to create an opportunity for their work. Um, and so I just stand in awe of them. I feel like they are such amazing examples of what it means to uh, not take no for an answer and really create opportunities for yourself and believing in yourself enough um, to go after it. They were guests on, on the show here. And the thing I was most impressed of was exactly what you talked about, but also that they were willing, I think it was, I want to say it was $30,000. They had saved up money and they had invested in it to get, you know, production for the second season of Broad City when it was still a web series mm -hmm. that they were willing to spend their own money and, you know, they were willing to invest them in themselves essentially. Yeah. And I think that that, uh, is a metaphor. I think like you can invest in yourself monetarily. Absolutely. But even scheduling out time in your day to, to write and to edify yourself and read and to go see theater and go to museums and to, invest in yourself as um, it has a lot of meanings. And I, I think that's super impressive to hear. And um, it's not surprising at all because that's who they are as people, um, just lovely people and, and all their success is entirely deserved. But I think that um, individuals who are out there and feel stagnant and feel like they're not being recognized. Um, I definitely think that waiting for the recognition it's not a good position to be in and um, finding ways to, to invest in yourself and to really commit to your idea and your passions in a tangible way um, is much more satisfying than waiting for someone to say thumbs up, thumbs, you know, say that you're worthy or not, you know.
And the other thing I was impressed with, they were very nice people. How important is it to be nice? I think it's crucial. <laughs> Can you explain? Um, it's for me, I think that, um, the longer I've done this, the more opportunities <laughs> that I've had to, to meet, uh, people who can be challenging. And I think that, um, people don't want to work with challenging people <laughs> in that way. Um, you mean challenging, people. of course, you're talking about jerks, right? Yeah, of yeah. course. And no one wants to want, wants to spend time and money and energy and collaborate with someone who's a jerk. And um, I, I think that like for me personally, like my um, desires are to work with like-minded people who are passionate about projects that I'm passionate about um, and are supportive in a really grounded, organic way and aren't too busy social climbing to have a conversation about, you know, something substantive. And um, I think there's in, in the comedy, especially maybe the idea that, you know, bravado or arrogance are currency. And I think that's, I hopefully um, dispelled enough uh, on your show or um, any, you know, anywhere else that that's not, the case that I think that true kindness and, and being real and authentic and considerate um, are the true currency, I think, in this industry and in comedy. But that doesn't mean you have to be a doormat. Oh, no, not at all. You know, I think um, Jane Fonda, I heard, she just uh, interviewed Lena Dunham in Paper Magazine and she said, you know, no is a complete sentence. <laughs> and so you can stand up for yourself and say no when you need to and um, understand that you have uh, the right to your opinion um, and to express that opinion in a way that's uh, not abusive or rude or antagonistic unnecessarily. So, um, and I think that a lot of times, um, it, there, it, I think, unfortunately, women in this industry um, feel that being nice is tantamount to being a pushover, being walked over. Um, but I think that, you know, strength is respected um, regardless of your gender. And I think that um, it's important to uh, know the difference for sure. Um, but I think that shouldn't make people afraid to hold a door open for someone or to compliment someone else's show, even if you think that, you know, they're your quote unquote competition, you know, it, it takes a bit of humility to be able to respect someone and, and do those sort of things that seem easy, but I, I know from personal experience can be difficult. I, I don't understand. And I struggle with this too, is why is it so hard to compliment other people on a good show? I think it's, it's interesting. I think it's, if, if it's someone that you feel is sort of quote unquote your competition, I think that can be more difficult as opposed to someone where you don't feel like there's any direct uh, injury suffered for their success. Um, but I think that for me anyway, I have always used those opportunities to become more hungry and passionate about what I'm doing. And I feel like complimenting someone on a show well done or, um, 
going to even going to the show to support the show um, does no harm to me at all. To me, I think like we have to, we have to support each other a hundred percent and see if there are ways to turn sort of that abject jealousy <laughs> and it's turning that into something more productive, which I think it's, you can be supportive and admire your peers and also use that to fuel your own passion for what you're, what you're doing. Um, so do so, you, do you yeah. get, is that how you turn your je- jealousy? You, you experience being jealous and then you use it to inspire you? Yeah. I think that like jealousy is a very human emotion. And I think that people can live in it and choose to use it as the only way to experience. That's you know, me. Seeing. That's me, Natasha. <laughs> okay. Well, that's certainly some people. It hasn't worked. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you right now it has not worked. Well, I'm sure that you find other emotions more pleasant than jealousy. <laughs> Anger. Anger's the Anger. second one. Yeah. Anger is and a bitterness, emotion. Yeah. And bitterness. Those yeah. are great trio. Yeah. That's a great trio. And you know what the good thing, too, is comparing yourself to others, as you've mentioned. That's always very helpful. Yeah, that's always good to keep your eyes on other people's paper. Yeah. Always know that the grass is greener and hate yourself. No. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think for me, it's important for me personally, again, I'll speak for myself to channel those moments where I feel jealous or I feel myself craning my neck to compare, um, and with great effort, (laughs) try to channel that into something positive that I can do for myself or for my career, um, is some is an exercise for sure every time, but it's something that I've been practicing, I think, for some time. And it becomes easier the more you do it because um, the alternative is just to seethe <laughs> at your friend's success. And when you're successful, you don't want your friends to do that for you. You want to feel their genuine support and you also want to see them thrive. So um, that's what I try to do. More often than not. I'm not there yet, but I I like it in theory. (laughs) We've got to wrap this up. This has been great. We asked the the final question is always the same question. What uh, piece of advice would you give to someone starting out in comedy and improv today? Ooh, what advice? Um, This is going to sound generic, but don't give up um, because you'll want to. You'll want to a lot. And... um, I think that uh, it can be the most frustrating, mind-numbing, painful, (laughs) sad um, journeys that you go on. Um, But at the same time, it will also be the best, most fulfilling, most freeing, experience that you have and and you'll vacillate between the two but i think that the the more you stick with it uh the more you'll realize um that it it is it's something that i think that uh makes the world a better place and i don't mean to sound saccharine but i think that it's very true i think that comedians and what we do uh, is very important and worthy you know, what we do is a, is a worthy endeavor. Um, it's not trite. It's not simple minded. It's not, um, less than any other art form. Um, and I think that 
sticking with it and really being committed to it um, can yield uh, some amazing, powerful life experience. And you meet the best people. You meet the best people doing it. <laughs> Natasha Rothwell, thank you so much for being a guest on Improv Nerd. And check out uh, Netflix. The show is called Characters, which debuts March 11th. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. You can put this one in the history books. I want to thank our guest, Natasha Rothwell. And check out her show, Characters, which premieres March 11th on Netflix. I'd like to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher, who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. If you want to know more about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes and summer intensives, just go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Everything Jimmy is at jimmycorain.com. My blog, my books, uh, it's all there, the, po- the episodes of the podcast. Uh, Also, we are taking over social media. I know you're aware of this. Uh, Go to the Improv Nerd Facebook page and like us because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Then follow us on Twitter, Improv underscore Nerd. And then go to our wonderful YouTube channel, which is all one word, Improv Nerd Podcast. We're lucky to be part of Feral Audio. Feral Audio is a podcast collective. Some of the most innovative, unique, and hilarious podcasts are happening on Feral Audio. So check out feralaudio.com. I want to thank my sponsors today, uh, the Improv Tonight Apt and the Harold Ramis Film School. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. (laughs) Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced pay in Spanish, oh my gosh. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 